This is the EWN Podcast Network. Everybody wants to win. It's how we define success in life. Michelle Nagel explores resilience, teaches you happiness hacks, and provides tools for building positive relationships, all of which are essential for winning at the game of life. Join us to learn how to roar. Welcome to Roar to Win. This is Michelle Nagel, your host, and today I have Janine Merkel Perlstein, who is a sociocultural anthropologist. She's studied behavior change across many different cultures, from the markets and prisons of India to the boardrooms of the United States. Janine has learned and implemented change strategies that have saved lives and made fortunes. Janine is a business strategist, U.S. patent holder, and revered speaker who worked as a medical anthropologist before becoming CEO of Alchemy Academy, where she has enriched workplace culture for clients ranging from solopreneurs to Fortune 100 companies. When not speaking, she mentors organizations to grow their workplace culture, develop their leadership skills, and achieve a higher level of positivity, productivity, and profitability. She's the author and creator of Internal Alchemy, the Welcoming Abundance Blueprint and Stand in Your Strength Strategies, where she provides training to clients worldwide and certifies coaches to use her models for their own clientele. The work is supported by her book, Finding Your Lighthouse, a leadership guide to navigating change. Looking at organizational culture through the eyes of an anthropologist, she sees the practices occurring outside of policy that often go unnoticed and hold organizations back from reaching their goals. Janine passionately helps business professionals and organizations get out of their way and become the powerful and recognized leaders that they are meant to be. So welcome, Janine. Thank you so much, Michelle. So great to be here with you and your audience. Well, I really appreciate it. So could you tell us, just so that people will know, and we you know, don't throw words out there that people don't have any idea what we're talking about, what is a sociocultural anthropologist? Oh, excellent question. Sure. So as an anthropologist, I am looking at what makes up a culture and then how that culture actually runs and operates. So to get into the nitty gritty, because I know that's the first question when I go into a workplace and we're talking about culture, they say, I see this buzz all over, you know, looking at workplace culture. Well, what does that really mean? And, uh, and truthfully, what it means is that anytime a group of individuals come together and begin sharing individual attributes, such as their attitudes, or their behaviors, or their beliefs, or even their values, and when they share them to the point where they become traditions, now you have a culture. And an anthropologist looks at those cultures in the intersections of those attributes and looks at the traditions that come from that and whether or not they are supporting an environment or uh, a detriment to the environment. And so as an anthropologist, it's very helpful to go in and look at groups of people to see where uh, additional harmony could be provided. (laughs) So in the workplace, this ends up being like we spend so much time with our coworkers that it becomes almost a familial kind of environment and you can take um, all of that that structure of everybody's belief systems and everything that they're putting together to see what kind of culture they are creating as to whether it's healthy or not exactly exactly and you know we know that uh, the more as individuals we can limit our or, or challenge rather our limiting beliefs 
the more nimble we become as individuals in times of change. And so when I look at cultures and I look at groups of people, I'm looking at their adaptability, you know, not just as individuals, but then also when they begin to share those attitudes and, and behaviors and beliefs with other people and how able they become to change within that structure as well. It's pretty fascinating work. Hmm, sounds like it would be. So uh, you said in the prisons of India, you need to explain yes. that one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, when I was in the medical anthropology field, I was doing uh, HIV prevention work mm -hmm. with vulnerable mm -hmm. populations in India. And uh, we went, I worked for a, a non-governmental organization that was funded by the MacArthur Foundation. And we would go in and, um, and help people understand about HIV prevention, condom use and uh, safe needle use and such with vulnerable populations. And so we, we really did go in and talk with the sex workers in the marketplace, but also uh, the men in the prisons, their prisons were very overcrowded. They were uh, built for the capacity of about half of what they actually were experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so we say that uh, men are sleeping on top of each other, it, it actually was quite literal. And, uh, and because of that scenario, those close quarters, they really did have a very, uh, um, upsetting um, environment for disease to spread. And so prevention measures were, it were so very helpful while we were there. And it was fascinating, as you can imagine, being a woman going into um, prisons in India teaching about condom use. I, uh, <laughs> I, learned, I learned quite a bit about um, about the culture doing it that way. And, and I just have to say, you know, I, I've, I've never been more welcome. I mean, these, these men were so gracious and so kind, and I was completely safe. And, and they were just so appreciative of the help. They recognized the problem, and, and they were so grateful for the help. And so it really was a lovely scenario. Wow, that's, a, that's an interesting way to look at that because, because as we just listened to it, it sounds like it could have been a pretty terrifying kind of thing. Right, right. And my, I have to say my translator, uh, who was my escort, was this, this young man who was probably about half my size in stature. And so when, we, when I knew that I was going with him, I thought, is this really a good idea? Uh -huh. But it turned out to be really no problem at all. It was really, it was really a lovely experience. Oh, that's wonderful. So how did you get started helping people get out of their own way? I, uh, I was do, I've been doing, as I mentioned, uh, behavior change throughout my career when I was in uh, the medical field and medical anthropology, but then I, I ended up in, in nonprofits back here in the United States. And I recognized after a long time that the, the pattern that I was really working toward and everything that I was doing was about behavior change, which is a big misnomer in the work that I do because, uh, you know, people don't change on the, on the level of their behaviors, but we can talk more about that in a minute. Okay. Um, uh, but what I recognized when I was in, was that when I was in the nonprofit world, I was working as CEO of a regional nonprofit was that there's this tremendous amount of fatigue that sets in when you try to, you know, push change. <laughs> and, and I actually personally got very sick. 
-hmm. and uh, and ended up having to sort of retreat from that from that job and and go back into consulting. And it was interesting, Michelle, because I, I was doing the work that I had always done of you know program evaluation and strategic planning and marketing planning. But for myself, in order to get better and in order to heal myself, I had to really focus on my inner game. I had to look at where I was tripping myself up. Um, and, and so I did a bunch of work that I had actually been collecting throughout the years just because I was fascinated in looking across cultures at the language of success. And so I had, I had made that a little bit of a hobby and when I went back into consulting, I, I used that work for myself in order to heal and to get better. And at the time, I thought, you know, if my life is getting so much better from this inner work, I wonder how it would work with my clientele. And so I, would, I, I began overlaying some of the inner work onto the marketing plans and strategy plans that I was giving to my clients. And I recognized that their results were so much better. And in fact, when I wasn't doing the inner work, sometimes I was sending somebody out the door with an excellent strategy, only to watch them, you know, trip over themselves 30 yards out of the starting gate. Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I panned back out and I thought, all right, what's really happening here? I recognized that this really was the anthropological uh, aspects of behavior change that I had been teaching all along, but it wasn't until I was really living it for myself in a way that I had to heal from and I had to get better from that I, that I tied it all together. I really put it all together. And that's where I recognized, oh, do you know, I'm not really in the behavior change world. I'm, I do change behaviors for people, both in groups and as individuals, but but we don't change because we tell ourselves to change or we don't change because our boss tells us to change. We change because we have a look at our beliefs and, and, and we do the work on the level of where beliefs have been uh, taught to us by our culture and our society and our parents and our teachers and the people we trust and respect. And, uh, and that's where the real work really happens. So, uh, so it was kind. It was in that really tough journey for myself that I recognized this is the power of what I have to offer for other people. So, you know, it's one of those blessing in disguise journeys, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> and because we all always teach what we know best, and we know best because we've experienced it ourselves. So it gave you exactly. Even though you became ill, it gave you an opportunity to look at it from the inside instead of from the outside. Exactly. Right, right. <laughs> Excuse me. So how does your perspective as an anthropologist color the way that you work with people? <clears throat> well, I have to go back to talking about beliefs here. You know, as an anthropologist, when when we go into a new culture, any new culture that we're looking at, we want to... We want to see all of the inner workings from a holistic perspective, you know, and we want to see things based on the, the relativism of that culture, you know, instead of having a um, having an ethnocentric viewpoint, which which would say, you know, my values 
are more righteous than yours, or my belief system is better than yours, and putting that on them. As an anthropologist, you know, we're trained to look relativistically at a culture and, and saying, okay, their governance structure is different than mine. How is that appropriate within that context? Or their health beliefs are appropriate within their context or their spirituality or whatever. You know, all of this, this holistic perspective, this big group of things that we may look at. Um, so that's really one is looking at, looking at things relativistically as appropriate to that culture. And even though as an anthropologist, I was trained to look literally at other countries, you know, very different cultures from my own. I use those same models within workplaces right here in the United States and Canada. And, uh, and you can see much of the same inner workings, the same goings on in those cultures as well. The other aspect that really makes a difference in, uh, in looking at this all through the lens of an anthropologist um, comes from the perspective that's taken. You know, in anthropology, we, we, there's, there's a concept pair that we pay close attention to, and that's the difference between taking the edict perspective, which is an outsider's perspective, and the emic perspective, which is an insider's perspective. And, uh, and both are incredibly necessary, whether we're talking, mm -hmm. Michelle, about the, the inner change that an individual has to do in becoming better at their life uh, or changing a system like a workplace or other, some other systemic culture. It's so helpful to have kind of that inner perspective that the informant knows as well as that outer perspective that um, some maybe stranger to that culture knows. Have you ever been working with somebody, I'm sure this has happened, where you can see so clearly where they may be blocking themselves, but they're just so incredibly close to it that they can't see it for themselves, you know? And, and that's, that's the benefit of, uh, of taking those two perspectives and marrying them together is that you know our, our brains uh, will filter out what is normal and usual to us. And so many cultures, they don't really know where problems may lie because the individuals can't see them. They've just become so usual. And that means that they've become uh, uh, hidden. And mm -hmm. so again, you know, that, that makes a difference both on the individual level and in the systemic level. And so as an anthropologist, being able to come in and see the difference between those two perspectives uh, creates tremendous value. So, you, you know, many, oh, so go ahead. I was going to say, do you find that um, because many, um, many companies have actually a multicultural employee base, do you find that that makes it a little bit more difficult because the employees don't understand one another. Yes, exactly. Employees, all employees come into the group with the beliefs that they grew up with. And the, the workplace develops their own set of beliefs. You know, I would say rather the, the management or the upper leadership of a workplace develops their own beliefs that come in the form usually in a workplace of the mission, vision, and values. Mm -hmm. And usually those things are set based on 
beliefs of the people who are setting them of, uh, of what they think is possible to achieve. But then you've got people on the front lines and they have other beliefs about what's possible for them to achieve. And if there's any kind of disconnect between the two, that's where you're going to have tension and drama in the workplace and low productivity. It might show up in absenteeism or high turnover uh, or other costly means for an organization uh, because of that disconnect in, uh, in those values or in those beliefs. But you were talking specifically about diversity, and it shows up even, even within its own tier because people will come in and bring different beliefs about uh, all kinds of things, humor, what kind of humor is appropriate, what kind of pace is appropriate for work to get done, you know, what standards of, um, of work ethic are appropriate. You know, all of these things are colored by the intersections of shared beliefs and attitudes and behaviors and values. So it's very interesting, you know, to see where the culture is being shaped by dominant personalities or by leadership, by prestige. You know, how does that happen? Where does that happen? And where can that be boosted? Wow. I just think you just opened up a whole world to me because I hadn't really thought of that before. It's like you've got, even just with two people in a room, they each have their different belief systems, the different way that they were raised, what is normal for them. And so that with any kind of relationship, you have kind of an opportunity to study anthropology with that. I'd never thought of that on a two-person basis before. That's exactly right. Even, uh, you know, a married couple or a sibling pair kind of has their own culture with them within them because they share that. You know, I have to share this. Uh, there's a Sufi saying that I just love that says, um, because you understand one, you think that you understand two because one and one is two. But you must also understand and. And I love that because every group of two people, two humans, have their own unique and. You know, their own unique intersection. Right. And, uh, and it's in looking at that where you find culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what are the first, step, first steps that you take in helping somebody to get out of their own way? Well, uh, whether I'm working with individuals in, in their leadership skills and developing skills, or I'm looking on the larger culture level, it really does start in, uh, it, it, from the beginning in the same way. And it's, it's something that I've already alluded to, but uh, it, it's doing an exact inventory of um, your individual attitudes, your behaviors, your uh, beliefs, and your values about different aspects of your life. You know, they, they play together. These, these groupings of beliefs, for instance, will play together maybe in your beliefs about your career and your finances and what money and wealth mean to you may play with other beliefs or have an effect on other beliefs in areas of your relationships and uh, the lovers that you've had or the, the parents that you've had in your relationship with your family or your children. And, uh, and so doing a, a, an inventory, really, about these big four uh, individual attributes, it can make such an incredible 
um, revelation for people. <laughs> it can really shine the light on some areas where they may have been getting in their own way. You know, we, we all have a have places in our life. I don't care how successful you have become. Uh, we all have areas in our life where we're where we're holding ourselves back, or we're sabotaging, or for for one reason or another, we're getting in our own way. And when you take a minute and you, and you really dissect what really is going on, it's it's becomes pretty clear. It becomes pretty easy to start to see exactly where some of these red flags are. And, you know, anything that you can see that comes into your consciousness, it, it kind of shifts your perspective. You know, we, we've already talked about the, the things that are usual remain unseen. And a lot of the ways that we're getting in the way have become habits, and we just don't see them anymore. And so the first step, of course, is to, is to to bring them out into the open so that you can you can look at them and know what to do next. And so I would say absolutely the first step for everyone is to write down different areas of their life. You know, it might be their physical body or their spiritual self or their career or their, you know, motherhood, different aspects of their life, and then really spend some time unpacking those four attributes that I've talked about within those within that context. It'll be very revealing. I imagine so. It almost sounds like a scary exercise. <laughs> well, it is right. Exactly. You know, it's one of those things. That's so true. It's one of those things that's, um, it's relatively simple, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. <laughs> yeah, there, there's certainly an amount of bravery that comes into doing any kind of inner work. Yeah, there is. Um, have, you, have you found ever that people are actually carrying generational beliefs or that they don't belong to them, but they're carrying yes. beliefs that were given to them by somebody else? Yes, yes, that's so true, Michelle. It, it is amazing. Sometimes just the simple act of writing this all down and it's, it's, you can watch it unfold as somebody's writing and they'll just go, oh! Oh, that's my mother, or that's my grandmother, or, you know, that, I, I believe that, I can see that I believe that, and there's evidence in my life that I believe that, but I don't want to. Mm -hmm. You know, my conscious brain tells me that's not right, and I want to change that about myself. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it, there's a very clear line of, um, of where they've inherited it through the generations. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes, you know, it's interesting too, sometimes I'll meet with clients and they'll, they'll say, I have this belief and I know it's wonky, it's not serving me, and I don't really know where it came from. And the good news is that you can rewrite that, you know, you can get rid of it and you can change it and you can come up with a belief that does serve you instead of holding you back. Um, and, and it really doesn't matter where it came from. I mean, it's always interesting to find its source because, like I said before, these beliefs, they play with one another. They usually come in packs. Mm -hmm. And uh, you want to make sure you've gotten all of them. Uh, and you can do that easier if you know, you know where the trigger points are or you know where they're coming from generally. But the good news is that, that you don't even have to know. Sometimes you can, you can just look at the fact that I have this thought and it keeps occurring in my brain and that tells me there's a belief there and it's not serving me and I need to get, I need to do something differently. And that's, that's the work that, that we want to be doing with people. Yeah, that's, it's 
power choice is the most powerful thing that we have is the ability to you know i i don't like that pattern so i choose to do something differently but you have to consciously do that too right it's, it's Michelle, go ahead yeah, you just said a mouthful i mean what you are just so on exactly um my belief about this that that i think that our culture really tells us to forget that we have choice. It kind of leads us down the path that, uh, that humanity by and large forgets that we have a choice mm -hmm. of uh, feeding that negativity or that belief or something that doesn't serve us or, or uncovering it and doing something different. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what makes us the most powerful people in the universe actually is, you know, um, God gave us the ability to make a choice and uh, we always have that choice, even when we're, when we're placed in situations that are really uncomfortable or, or maybe even life-threatening. We still have an instant, just snappy opportunity to make a choice. So, exactly, um, and that it's powerful. It gives us all of our power. But the the things that I hear so often is, um, I couldn't help it. It wasn't my fault. It was somebody else's fault, you know, so it's, it's all the blaming and complaining and not accepting responsibility for our own behaviors. And so if something's not working in our, our office culture or our family culture or whatever, if something's not working, then change it. Just make the right. choice. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So often I see the culture of blame and the culture of mistrust within an office place. And, um, you know, that's just maybe one of the most toxic things that can come up in a workplace in terms of robbing you of your own productivity. And, uh, mm -hmm. and it, 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 it does stem from that choice, or it's fixed in one choice, too. Yes, yes, it does. So um, how does culture contribute to people's results, then? You've, you've touched on that, but how do they, can you take culture and then make that conscious choice to have positive outcomes in your whatever you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting thing when uh, when you do sort of tease apart the beliefs and values of an individual and see where they are shared. Um, you can you can change them and you can adopt a shared value or a shared culture or, or sorry shared belief that does serve you in the direction of your dreams. And whether that's you know, yours or your workplace or, or whatever and you're working within, whatever pairings you're working within, um, it's an interesting thing because uh, when you start developing those habits based on the attributes that are serving you instead of holding you back, it's amazing the outcomes that start falling into place. It's, you know, almost as if by magic it really is amazing how it seems it seems like uh serendipity appears and um, miracles show up and uh outcomes you know obstacles that used to be so formidable they would knock you off your path end up looking like a tiny little speed bump that you just cruise over and think is kind of fun mm -hmm. and and i believe that changing your culture fundamentally and doing this in groups where it goes beyond just the change of the individual. Um, you start seeing change on a systemic uh, level and, and those outcomes start falling into place all over. And it's, it's 
it becomes this sort of um, self-fulfilling, like success breeds success sort of thing within a culture. Mm-hmm. And, and the outcomes are, are tremendous when everybody becomes aligned. It's almost like, um, <laughs> I don't know, this is maybe a, a, a crude analogy, but it's a little bit like turning a workplace into a prayer group. <laughs> Do you know? In that with a prayer group, people are aligning their intentions. Mm-hmm. And it's so incredibly powerful when people come together with an aligned thought or focus or intention. And when you do that within a culture of a workplace or any other subculture where you very carefully align um, while you're while people are feeling empowered and happy and joyful, now you've got a focus that can drive a level of productivity that most workplaces haven't haven't yet seen. And it's it's magic. It really is um, amazing to watch that unfold. What if you can't get everybody else on board? If you're able to see that there are changes that need to be made and you want to make those changes, but nobody else is on board with that, what right. if that happens? Yeah, that, it's, a, it's a tricky situation. There are some people who will be absolutely 100% resistant to change. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, I, I have gotten some of the most stubborn people on board with change process before. Um, and there are some who really are committed to staying stuck. And, and it really is up to the leadership of an organization whether or not they want to hold people on who are committed to staying stuck. Because the subtext of that is that they're committed to sabotaging the outcomes of the organization. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they maybe don't belong in that particular culture. Now, it could be that you've got an amazing individual who needs to find the right fit. They need to find the right culture for them. And, uh, and I do like identifying that for people. You know, some people recognize, no, I'm going to be better supported in a culture that has these attributes versus these. And, and that's a beautiful thing to say. But when that resistance comes from, People who hold access to all the resources, they've got wealth, power, and prestige within an organization. They, if they're resistance to, resistant to change, then I bless and release them. They're mm-hmm. not for me to work with. Uh, it, 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 won't, it won't move. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so do you think that one person is powerless to change an organization or can their influence still help? their influence can help. Um, And I like that you used the word influence because uh, people can influence their culture from any position. Mm -hmm. And um, it it, it starts with one person. Absolutely. You know, it's obviously better when you, when you safety in numbers, when you get more people. Um, But no, people are not powerless to this. Uh, I have found that when someone approaches change from a place of joy and positivity, I think that the workplaces nowadays, at least in North American culture, are craving authenticity uh, to such a high degree that when they see someone approach change from this level of creating emotional safety and creating joy, creating positivity, 
that uh, that they find it easier to create movement from that position. It's pretty mm -hmm. fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, they they it can be done on 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 the level of just one, but certainly harder that way. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Uh, we're going to take a small break, and then we'll come back and continue our conversation with Janine Merkel Perlstein. And this is really great stuff. So make sure you come back. Do you feel like you're drowning in administrivia? Do you have a podcast you would like transcribed to repurpose as a blog or even a best-selling book? Rhonda's Virtual Office is the answer to the freedom you crave so you can get busy doing what you love. Let Rhonda's Virtual Office give you the relief you need. Visit rondasvirtualoffice.com and get some peace of mind today. Rhonda's Virtual Office is the go-to transcription service for EWN Podcast Network. Welcome back. This is Michelle Nagel with Roar to Win, and we are interviewing um, Janine Merkel Perlstein, who is the leader of the Alchemy Academy, and she transmutes vision into success. And I'm just really interested and in, fascinated, actually. You're the first person that I've ever met that has studied anthropology who actually did something with it. <laughs> so, uh, Right. It was a big joke, actually, when I went into anthropology within my family. And uh -huh. my dad just said, I, you know, I don't even know what you're talking about. How are you ever going to find a career? And, uh, and I knew that I would never open a, a want ads, you know, or, or, or look at a listing and see anthropologists wanted, you know, people just don't <laughs> think that way. But truly, the, the attributes of what I studied and and what I learned in in practice and uh, and what I even taught to my own students, I learned I, I use those attributes every single day in my work. I feel very blessed to have found a discipline that teaches me uh, pattern recognition and cross cultural comparison and you know all of the things that enable me to take a, a larger view to the systems that I'm looking at when I go in to help navigate change from, you know, either on the, on the level of the individual or on the level of the organization. So you're actually a pattern disruptor. Well, right. Sometimes you have to tear, tear things apart before you can put them back in again. You know, I, I often say when I, when I go into an organization that, you know, we're going to take this big old bag of stuff that you have that makes up your business and we're going to dump it out all on the floor and, uh, and, you know, have a good look at it and then only put back in the bag those things that are serving you. Right. And so, and sometimes, uh, sometimes it does look pretty darn ugly in the middle of it. So, yeah. <laughs> I, <have a> <laughs> I imagine. Ooh, we just dumped tar on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right. So, since one of my tenets is resilience, what do you think helps people bounce back after hardship? You know, when we've been knocked down, it's so easy for us to align our stories with other stories that culture tells us, um, or, or rather gives us as a means for attention. And, and it's, it's pretty easy for us to, to get into this mode where we ruminate for far too long on, uh, on our own story, on whatever knocked us down or whatever took us off our path or whatever obstacles in our way, whether that was internal or external or some combination uh, of them. 
And I see so many people who, who stay on that path of negativity and they don't get themselves back up because they buy into these stories from, from our culture that say it's okay to, to wear that badge of victimhood. And in fact, you may actually get some attention to it. Um, having said that, when somebody has the ability or, or the tool set and deploys the tools to recognize that, that that's only one piece of the story. You know, when something bad happens, there's the thing that happened. You know, people like to tell that story over and over again. Oh my gosh, you'll never guess what happened to me. You know, it becomes sometimes even office place traditions where people try to out crappy day each other, you know, like, well, you think that's bad. <laughs> you never believe what happened to me, you know, and, and so, so bad things that happen to people on one level, they get told as stories and sometimes they get retold and retold and retold and, and you've got to look there for sure. But the second thing that happens is that those stories begin to bring up emotions and uh, oftentimes those emotions don't serve us on a, on a, bio, a simple biochemical sense, you know, in, in that realm. Uh, those emotions don't, don't serve us and they actually will help to help or hurt, but they will uh, enable more of that feedback process that goes on in rumination. And then the third thing that happens is that once we've practice that emotion for so long that it's become part of our overall mood and our demeanor. And then all of a sudden our personality becomes informed by it. Now all of a sudden we've got this identity marker that's been informed by the story because we just have ruminated on and on and on about it. And, and what I want for people is I want them to disrupt the pattern in the story and reframe that story so that they begin to believe something different can happen as an outcome from it. And, and that difference has to happen on the level of their own beliefs of what's possible. And so I want to work with people about challenging any limiting beliefs that they may have of overcoming obstacles in their past and and focus on a lot of the evidence that we all already have of overcoming obstacles in their past. You know, uh, another thing that, that culture tells us to do that I just find so fascinating is this role that we play where we're not at all supposed to be braggadocious or arrogant or, in fact, even champion ourselves in any endeavor. You know, there's this script that we play out when somebody compliments us as, oh, you did such a great job at that. And, and our role is to say, oh, no, no, it was nothing. But you, you're amazing. You know, we, we do this in our culture and, and it's not our fault. It's just sort of we're playing a role. But when we deflect our wins that way and we're not broadcasting it, our brains listen to that and our brains will say, Really? I thought that was kind of a big deal, but you're saying now that wasn't a big deal? Okay, I guess I'm just going to forget it. Mm -hmm. and, and then the next time that we go to try to do something new and we try to do something great, we can't remember having overcome those obstacles in the past because our brain didn't hold on to them. Mm -hmm. And so what we do instead is we look for external validation that it's possible for us to do it, you know, especially 
younger generations who are tapped into social media, who are looking for the likes and they're looking for the, the, the post interaction and how much somebody, somebody external to them is validating their worth in the world. Mm -hmm. And, and so when someone is overcoming hardship, what I want them to have is I want them to have their own record, preferably a written record of exactly how awesome they are, how many times they have overcome obstacles in their life and they have done something great. Mm -hmm. And so the next time that they go to do something and their brain needs that evidence that it's possible for them, I want them to have that. Mm -hmm. And I love recommending for people to, um, to keep a success journal that, that has not only the big, uh, the big resume style things, the big obstacles that they've overcome, but also some of the small things. You know, there are some days where, hey, getting up and brushing your teeth is a win. Right. And uh, right. sometimes, you know, just, just marking that down and writing it and saying, you know what, I didn't want to have that conversation, but I did. And it worked out okay. Mm -hmm. And when you find yourself of times like that, it makes it so much more easy to go into the next great thing that you're going into without having to rely on somebody to blow sunshine when, um, when somebody might not be there at that moment when you need them to be. That's an amazing portion that you just gave because a lot of us do that that comes into the the thing of um, you know taking care of yourself is selfish and acknowledging your wins is arrogant or um, conceited or you know we were all taught really carefully to avoid that at all costs and so um, I recently had to do just that activity where I had to write down all of my wins and I started from when I was you know. I, I stood up and I walked for the first time, you know, that was something that I had to learn how to do. So, right. but we have this tendency to just kind of blow all this stuff off and you're right. We do forget it. So when we write it down, I, I looked at it myself and I'm going, wow, I did all that. I'm a pretty yeah. amazing person. You know? Right. Because if it had right. been somebody else, I would have said that they were amazing, but it was me that did it. So that's, I really appreciate that you, um, suggested that exercise and I would invite our listeners to really do that because it's amazing yes. what it does. Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, if, if everybody hearing this would, would do this one exercise and, and especially recommend it to the young people in your life, you know, the people who, who are looking right now, I think more than ever, for external validation. Although, you know, somebody advanced in years, it, it's amazing the garbage that gets stuck in our brains that tells us, you know, you're not good enough, you're not worthy enough, all of this junk. And then, and then when you can look back at, at true written evidence, you know, nobody's trying to BS you, nobody's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. That's your real written record of mm -hmm. how awesome you are. It really can be life changing. Yeah, it can be. So is optimism a learned behavior or do some people just come that way? I believe that it's enculturated. Okay. Uh, I believe that, the, that your level, uh, well, it's both. So your level of optimism, that's just sort of like your set point. Like if nothing really terrible comes your way and yet nothing really good your, comes your way, you have sort of a, a set point of, 
how optimistic you tend to see to see the world or the lens through which you see the world and i believe that that set point is given to you by your family's set point or your culture's set point having said that I do believe that optimism can be a learned skill because it is so tied to your beliefs about what makes somebody happy and what should or should not make somebody unhappy. That can change, those beliefs can change how, how you walk through the world in any given day, whether you believe that the world is conspiring to do you good or the world is out to get you. Uh, I think that you can change that. You can work on that. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Sean Aker's work in The Happiness Advantage. One of the principles that he talks about, uh, he calls it the Tetris effect, and I just love this. He talks about taking a, a group of undergrads uh, in the psychological experiment, because it's always the undergrads that get, <laughs> they get pulled into this. They put them in a basement room for days on end, and they make them play Tetris. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after several, for hours on end, and after several days of hours on end playing this video game, they send them out into the world and they, they ask what happened. And, and these people said, you know, I, I saw shapes everywhere I went. I wanted to organize the, the cereal boxes in the grocery store by shape. And I wanted to organize the, the buildings in the skyline by shape. And it's interesting because we can wire our brains so quickly for the lens through which we see the world. And I think that, that optimism can be changed, that that lens can be changed by bombarding our brains over and over again, just like those kids playing the, the video game, with levels of positivity, with things like, like gratitude or mm -hmm. generosity. You know, the, I call those two the, the battery packs. You know, any time that you can infuse more generosity into your life, if you were to, if you were to put yourself on a strict 30-day giving plan, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, every day, you're, you're seeing the day through the lens of, how can I be of service to other people today? How can I bring joy to somebody else today? You know, that, that changes that filter of optimism that you see. And likewise, with, with spending five minutes a day gratitude journaling, research shows that we can raise our level of happiness by 30% just by spending five minutes in the morning by writing down what we're grateful for. And, uh, and so I think that through some of these tools, we can use the, the Tetris effect to change our lens through which we move. And, and we also know in terms of productivity and outcomes, we can get so much more done in a day when we're optimistic, when we're feeling good, when we are smiling through our day versus when we're bracing ourselves and contracting against what may or may not come. Absolutely, yes. So what if somebody is doing this work on themselves and then their coworker, their boss, their spouse or whatever uh, gets upset with them and, and I know that it's because they're shaking the status quo and that makes people uncomfortable. So what can you do for that? You know, it's an interesting thing because this happens a lot, I think, when most people go on a growth trajectory for themselves. They're always going to run up against the old limiting beliefs of other people. And I think it's very important for people to recognize you can really only change two things when it comes to other people. You can change your reaction to them 
and you can change your proximity to them, <laughs> but you cannot change them. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to remember. But I've also found that when people go on change, uh, a, a big change journey for themselves, that the people that are closest to them are going to have one of three reactions to them. And it's, I think it's very helpful for you to know of this in advance. But some people are going to say, oh, my gosh, you're doing all this work on yourself. And you're leaving me in this playground where people are sm playing small. And you're going up where people are playing big. And I want to do that too. And I want to work on myself and I'm going to do the work and I'm going to follow you with, with them, right? Mm -hmm. That's one, one aspect. The second thing that they could do is say, wow, you're doing all this work to change and you change yourself and you're going, you're going into that playground where people are playing big and you're leaving me here behind, but that's okay. I'm just not ready to change. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to bless and release you and good luck to you. Mm -hmm. And then the third case, which is more likely, is they say, screw you. Who do you think you are being all big in your britches, going off into this playground where people are playing big and shining so bright that your shine makes me feel dim? Mm -hmm. And some people will be very resentful of the change that happens in you. And I think that when you are aware of that, and you know that you can invite them to come and you can help give them the tools, but that it's up to them. It makes it a lot easier to sometimes have to say, uh, I'm not going to let you tether me to this small place anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not okay. Mm -hmm. And to give yourself permission to grow, to grow anyway. It's some difficult work sometimes, but it can also be very rewarding and very necessary. So you tell people to stand in their strength. How can they begin doing that? The big thing is I want to circle back around to this, um, this exercise that I shared in the, in the very beginning, and I, I really want to invite your audience to work on um, developing their their these attributes that I'll share in just a second. Um, because I, I think that the first steps in standing your, in your strength is recognizing where you may be holding yourself back. And so if you were to write down your attitudes, and what that is, is it's your state of mind or your feeling in any particular instance. Um, and it's the most changeable of all of these attributes. You know, you might have an attitude about tacos on Tuesday, um, but it might change so that you want pasta on a Wednesday. Uh, then your behaviors, of course, are your actions and your reactions to certain stimulus. And, um, and that's really valuable to, to know, but really only in the case that they inform you that every behavior has tied to it certain beliefs. And that's the third attribute to look at. And beliefs are not necessarily true, but beliefs are your conviction in the truth of something. And when you're convicted that it's true, then it will compel you to behave in a certain way. And, uh, and that's important for you to recognize. And they are changeable. And then finally, your values. And these are your standards or the qualities that you deem worthwhile in life. And these are the, the least likely to change. They do sometimes change, but they are the least likely. And so it's important for you to know, to, to do that inventory of those four attributes in many different areas of your life, because when you write those things down, as we mentioned before, 
you will begin to see areas where you've left, uh, you've left some potential on the table. And to really pay attention to those beliefs because for every limiting belief that you reveal, here's your next step. I want you to create a belief that counters that, that does support success instead of the ones that don't. Because now you, you can start the process of rewiring your brain for success instead of holding yourself back. Yeah. And that, that's really, we are such creatures of habit and our thinking patterns are all habits. So we may identify a limiting belief and then try for a little while to do the opposite, but it, it requires consistency and effort. I, it would yeah. be so nice if we could go, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. Done. Yeah. <laughs> right. I want those ruby red slippers started. Oh, on it. <laughs> well, I have really enjoyed visiting with you, Janine. How can uh, my listeners get in contact with you if they're interested in knowing more about your programs? Absolutely. At standinyourstrength.com. You can Which find me at Stan. Gorgeous website, by the way. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, standinyourstrength.com. Um, there's a place they can reach out to me, contact me. They can even apply uh, for a session where we can we can plan for your success and really spend some time digging in on finding out uh, what that thing is that's holding you back and what to do about it. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Virginia, for spending this time with us today. I'm very thrilled to be here. Thank you, Michelle. I appreciate you. Take care. Thank you for joining us today as we learned happiness hacks, relationship tools, how to refuel our resilience batteries and perfect our roar. Resilience, optimism, accountability, and resourcefulness. Roar to win. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN podcast hosts at EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This is the EWN Podcast Network.